today on Divine Truth Podcast. What a blessed hope to know that I don't go through life and I don't see things like 9-11, I don't see things like a, a school shooting, pitiful, small, helpless children being shot. I don't see those things and say, well, that was for nothing. I may not have all the answers, but I do know that God is sovereign. And I do know that God works all things for his glory. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Jude verse 4 reads, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the inerrant, inspired, and sufficient word of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we praise you for this day. We praise you, Lord, for this day that we've had in your house to learn from your word and to worship you thus far that you've given us. We praise you, Lord, so much uh, that you have graciously given us that. And we do pray, Lord, that as we endeavor to look into your word, I just pray, Lord, that you would help me as I teach your word, help me to do so clearly and humbly. And Lord, I do pray, Lord, that the message of the word of God would be clear, and I pray that it would bless those who hear it. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so when we started last week, um, in our, or continued rather, in our uh, study of Jude, we really jumped right into the exclusivity of Christianity. The exclusivity of Christianity. And we saw that when we read that Jude described the Christian faith not as a faith, but rather he described the Christian faith back in verse 3 as the faith. The faith. If you look at the last part of verse 3, Jude says, exhorts you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, the faith. And we looked at that and we said that Jude was not speaking with general language, but spoke with very specific language. He did not accidentally write the faith. He very purposefully wrote the faith. We said that Jude was not talking about a bunch of vague or ill-defined bodies of religious doctrine, but rather uh, Jude was talking about the Christian faith when he said the faith. The Christian faith is the faith of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the faith of God's objective truth. And Jude further defines the faith when he says it has been once delivered unto the saints. And we said that what Jude meant by this when he said the faith or the Christian faith is once delivered to the saints, he's saying that it is all the truths of the Christian faith given by God through the Spirit unto the apostles, written with finality and certainty in Scripture, and then handed down to the saints. The Christian faith is a very, very specific narrowly defined faith. And no deviation from this faith 
must be tolerated. Any deviation from this faith actually is unorthodox, it's heretical, and it ultimately condemns the one who has departed from this faith to hell. The Church of Jesus Christ needs not have an anything-goes mindset. Because an anything-goes mindset leads people, as I said, to hell. And with this mindset and with this idea, I told you last week that often the world will call you narrow-minded. And they will call you narrow-minded. But we said last week that the proper way to describe Christians is narrow-path-minded. Narrow-path-minded because our eyes, our mind is fixed on the narrow way, the single way that is Christ. We then mentioned that this is the reason why Christians are to devote themselves to both know, understand, proclaim, and protect doctrine and theology. We looked at the fact that really there's no such thing as a Christian having no interest in doctrine and theology because you're only a Christian because you first understood doctrine and theology. All the things that revolve around the gospel are doctrinal issues. Therefore, you can't be a Christian and not know doctrine and theology. Everything starts there. We did say that it must not stop there with merely a mental ascent of knowing certain facts, but it has to start there. Never stops, but it starts first with the mental knowledge And then that mental knowledge will lead to resting in the truths that you've understood. But it all starts with doctrine and theology. And this is why Christians must know it and very specifically and very narrowly define the Christian faith. We are the pillar and ground of truth, as Pastor preached this morning. We as the church are uh, depicted and described as that which upholds and defends the truths of God, and we must take this job with dead seriousness. And why was this? Why was this that Jude is calling for this church to be the pillar and ground of the truth, to know doctrine and theology, and to specifically and narrowly define the Christian faith? Well, that's where we looked last time at Jude's illustration Jude's illustration, and we said last time that the reason why Jude was calling this church to defend the faith was because of the sudden influx of false teachers. And we saw that in verse 4 when Jude says, For there are certain men crept in unawares. Certain men crept in unawares. So Jude calls this church to fight for the faith, but he then gives the reason for that fight as this sudden influx of false teachers and reminded you last time that the truth of God ever since the garden has been under attack. And one of the greatest ways that the truth of God comes under attack is the form of false teaching. And we said that it is both the job of pastors and the job of the uh, members of the church to know their Bibles and to defend its truth against false teachers. And then we said that Jude acts sort of as a general in the the last part of verse 4, and he's describing to his troops, us, the church, the enemy. Because the better you know the enemy, their tactics, who they are, the better you're able to fight against them. 
And this is what Jude endeavors to do. And we looked at last time at the presence of false teachers. The presence of false teachers where Jude said, for there are certain men crept in unawares. Jude was not speaking of a hypothetical threat that may or may not come upon this church, but he was speaking of a very real and true threat that had already infiltrated this church. It's not that these false teachers might be coming, but Jude was writing to a church that already had false teachers amongst them. And therefore, this is the presence of false teachers. They may not come, they're already here and you're called to fight. And in our day, false teachers may not be here. They are already here, and you need to fight. And the same threat, as I said, that was real in Jude's day is the same threat that is real and alive and very active and very much so growing in our day. False teachers desire to privately sneak into the church, put on an affront of religion, gain influence, gain trust, gain popularity, and so that they might in turn harm the true church with their false teaching as they steadily and slowly sneak it in. And we describe false teachers as the spiritual Trojan horse of the church. Looks good, looks like a gift sometimes, but it actually is there to kill you. And that's what false teachers do. But how does Jude uh, else describe these false teachers? He further describes these false teachers. And we want to look at now how Jude further describes these false teachers. And so we saw the presence of false teachers. They're here. But now we want to look at predetermined evil predetermined evil. In the latter part of verse 4, we read, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Before of old ordained to this condemnation. A predetermined evil. From the earliest time in redemptive history, God has promised to judge apostates. False teachers always, inevitably, will bring God's judgment upon themselves. The Greek word here for where we get before of old ordain suggests that long ago God pronounced damnation against all apostates. Those who teach falsehood, Judas saying, will not, will not go unpunished. But those who teach falsehood, do so at their own peril and at their own demise. Because God has promised to judge all false teaching with the utmost of severity. And this judgment that Jude is referring to is an anticipatory judgment. It's not a judgment that has come in its full state yet, but it is a promised, prophesied judgment that will take place. And Jude further described this judgment uh, later in this book in verses 14 and 15 when he said, 
And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And in seeing these apostates and how they have so deformed the church, one might be inclined to grow weary, to grow sad and to grow faint in their Christian life, especially those Christians who are trying to devote themselves to the Christian faith, to the right faith, and to the truths of Scripture, when you see these false teachers and their false teaching and how they have, really, if you watch any form of television uh, teachers and preachers, though while all of them are not bad, uh, uh, many of them are, and if you watch them, you'll see that many of them have huge churches packed to the brim with people. And when you see that and you know the teaching that they are teaching is false, it is easy to grow weary, to grow faint, to grow sad at how so many people can be so easily duped and how so much falsehood can gain so much of an audience. But Jude would have us realize this one thing. None of those false teachers and not one word of their false teaching will go unpunished. No matter the influence, no matter the influx of people, no matter how packed their churches may be, nothing will go unpunished. Every crime, every word that is idle and false will be dealt with with the utmost of severity. And this is what uh, Jude would have us know. The Old Testament prophets, as well as the Apostle Peter, spoke of the promised judgment of these false teachers. Peter writes about it in 2 Peter 2.3, But through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. God has promised to judge false teachers and judge them he will, if not in this life, which he may, certainly, and at the utmost climation of their judgment at the final day when God sorts everything out. So, while they spew their false teaching from their false pulpits in their false churches, they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction and they are storing up right now their present time, God's wrath against them. And God has promised that he will pour this wrath out upon them. Nothing will be gotten away with because nothing is ever gotten away with because we serve a just God who lets nothing get away with. Either your sin is dealt with on Christ for Christians or your sin is dealt upon you. Nothing is gotten away with. And these false teachers will get away with nothing. So forget about the size of their churches. Pray that they'd be shut down maybe, but know that they will be judged. Know that they will be judged. Nothing gets away with. All throughout history, from the beginning of time and to the end of time, God has promised, promised to judge those who distort his truth. And again, as we've said, this started in the garden. And God's promise to judge started in the garden. Genesis three thirteen through 15. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is it that thou hast done? 
And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the serpent, the one who distorted his truth, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. From the beginning of time, from the moment sin entered into the world, and the moment God's truth was distorted, God promised to judge that distortion, and he will do it. He will do it. God's judgment upon these false teachers, you could liken it to an executioner who's fully awake, axe in hand, ready to strike at any moment when the Lord says so. But one might be inclined to ask the question, because God is sovereign, because God is overall, because God rules and reigns on his throne, as the scriptures say he does, why the existence of the false teachers to begin with? Why? Why would God sovereignly ordain false teachers to exist? Because if he didn't, they wouldn't exist. God ordains whatsoever shall come to pass. Why would God do that? Why would God ordain the existence and the teaching of false teachers? Because we must realize that God was not taken by surprise, and what a comfort that is to know. That when God's truth was distorted, he didn't, wasn't blindsided one bit. As our pastor well says, what is one word that you never hear from the throne of God? Oops. Never hear it. Because God knows all, he is in all, and he ordains all. And whatever comes to pass, God has ordained. But why? Why would he do that? One thing we must know, and one thing we need to begin with, it is not for nothing. It's not for nothing. Nothing that God does is for nothing. Nothing is wasted. Nothing and if the existence of these false teachers were for nothing, that would be more evil than their existence to begin with. And I will want, and while I want to make it abundantly clear, abundantly clear, God is not the author of any evil, nor does he approve of any evil, yet God sovereignly chooses to use, listen to me carefully, the already present evil within the hearts of men because you're evil because your nature he sovereignly uses that evil to bring him glory and now you're asking how does god use evil to bring him glory in the case of the of these false apostates how does he do it how does god use the ordained existence of false teachers and their false teaching to bring him glory. God ordained that by the existence and the teaching of these false teachers that they would one day be judged for their false teaching. And in this judgment, God would get glory in the display of his wrath against the sin of false teaching. And in this judgment, it brings him glory. 
because we must realize that God gets glory, listen to this carefully, God gets glory in displaying his wrath just as much as he gets in displaying his mercy. God desires to put his attributes on full display. And God is not only a God of mercy, he's a God of anger and a God of wrath and a God of vengeance. And therefore, God displaying his wrath gives him just as much glory as it does in displaying his mercy. So God ordained the existence of these false teachers and their false teaching so that by their existence, by their false teaching, and using this false teaching that they do, though while he does not approve of it, he does not um, have anything to do with it, he is not the author of that evil. He uses this evil to bring him glory as he judges the false teaching of these false apostates, you see. Again, I want to make it clear, he doesn't approve of it. He has nothing to do with the evil. God, of course, did not approve of the heresy that these false teachers taught, but in his sovereignty, he uses it to bring him glory as he judges these false teachers. Where do we get this from? Because you probably want to know that I'm not just a spouting, rambling person. Where do we get this from? Proverbs 16.4 The Lord hath made all things for himself. Listen to this last part. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you thought it against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. If you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, I'm not going to go through it because that would uh, waste more time than I have. But if you remember it, just to briefly, his brothers um, threw him in a pit, told his father that he was dead, sold his brother into slavery, and all these things came to pass. And then years go by, Joseph saves his people, saves his brothers, and ultimately they realize that this is the brother that we claim to be dead. Joseph does not punish them as he could have, but rather he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So here is an example of God ordaining and using evil acts to bring him glory. How did he bring him glory? In the case of Joseph, he saved his people. He saved his people. And probably the greatest example of God sovereignly using evil to bring him glory is in the crucifixion of our Lord. Acts 2.23 says, Him, meaning Jesus, being delivered, listen to this, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God the Father certainly did not approve of the greatest act of evil known to man, namely the crucifixion of our Lord. But what does Peter say in his sermon in Acts 2? He said that Christ was delivered to be crucified. How? It just happened. Happenstance. No, Christ was delivered to be crucified by the determinate counsel of God. The crucifixion of Christ was ordained by God the wicked and most vilest thing to ever happen. God certainly, of course, 
did not plant that evil within the hearts of those men to do that. He had nothing to do with that evil. He did not approve of that evil because you don't have to create evil within the hearts of people that are already evil. And you don't have to tell someone to do an evil thing. No, sinners are going to sin quite well by themselves. But God used that sin that was already existent within the hearts of those men to deliver Christ, to crucify Christ, to bury Christ, and then Christ rises on the third day, and how does God get glory by the most evil act ever committed to men? He brings many sons to glory. And this brings God glory. The most evil act brings God glory. And just a side note, what a blessed hope to know that I don't go through life and I don't see things like 9-11, I don't see things like a, a school shooting, pitiful, small, helpless children being shot. I don't see those things and say, well, that was for nothing. I may not have all the answers, but I do know that God is sovereign. And I do know that God works all things for his glory. If he can work the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of glory for his glory, he can work all things for his glory. In your life and in mine, God is sovereign and God uses evil while he does not approve of it to bring him glory. To bring him glory. And in the case of these apostates, he will do so in judging them for their sin. He ordained it, and it came to pass, does not approve of it, but he gets glory in judging these. So this was a predetermined evil, a predetermined evil. Next, we want to look at a pleasurable evil, a pleasurable evil. And that is also in the latter half of verse 4. So they were before of old ordained to this condemnation, a predetermined evil, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, a pleasurable evil. Jude describes these men as ungodly men. These false teachers, they couldn't worship God properly, and in fact, were, were and are void of any real reverence for him. And the word that Jude described, used to describe these men, he describes them as ungodly men. This is the same word that the early church fathers used for atheists and heretics. So these false teachers, Jude used the same word that early church fathers used for atheists. Meaning that these men were godless men. They lived as if God did not exist at all. They put on an affront of religion. They put on a mask of religion. But in their life, in their teaching, and in their practice, they lived as if God did not exist at all. A mark of true false teachers. A, a study that Dad did a couple night, a couple weeks ago. Coram Deo, living before the face of God, meaning Christians live knowing the fact that my main audience is always the sovereign Lord of heaven. But these false teachers and all false teachers live as if God doesn't even exist to begin with. He calls them ungodly or godless men. 
These false teachers only give lip service to their godliness. But when it comes to who they actually are and how they actually live, they live as if there was no God to whom they will one day answer for their lies, for their false teaching, and for their hypocrisy. And sadly, we know much of this today. There are so many false teachers who claim to proclaim Christ, to be one of his servants. Again, as I said, put on a front, a mask of religion, but who they are discredits any claims that they make. Uh, John MacArthur said in his commentary on Jude, although they purport to be spiritual leaders, in reality, they egregiously betray their uh, their constituents' trust in shockingly immoral and unethical ways. They all claim to know and speak truthfully of God, Jesus, and Scripture, but their sinful character undermines that claim. These false teachers only play at religion. They put on their church clothes. They put on a fresh fleece of wool. But underneath, there are what they are, wolves. And you can't change that. They are, as Christ described in Matthew 23, 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Matthew 23, 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto white, whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bone and of uncleanliness. False teachers are like a tomb, beautiful, whitewashed on the outside. People come to visit it. Tourists come to visit tombs of famous men. But what's on the inside? Bones, rottedness, a corpse. That's what false teachers are. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're nothing but deadness and rottenness. First Timothy 6.5 Perverse disputings of men of corrupted minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Second Timothy 3.5 Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Titus 1.16 They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Like the Pharisees, these false teachers clean up the outside and make themselves appear to look godly and clean, but on the inside they are full of impurity, uncleanliness, and rottedness, and they use their false claims of religion as a financial strategy to fill their bank accounts, and to line their pockets. They use the name of Christ, again, as a financial strategy, rather than the one true Savior and Lord. And they use the church of Christ as a business empire, not the bride of Christ. And they use their title as pastor to gain power and prominence, not to serve the people of God. You know what a pastor is? He's a servant not a business mobile. We got a lot of business mobile pastors. 
And I believe it makes God sick. False teachers. False teachers. And they distort the truth. And they prey on innocent, helpless minds. And they cause people to go wayward from the truth. They speak of God and yet live as if he doesn't exist. So we see that Jude describes these false teachers as ungodly men. Quickly, how else does Jude describe the character of these false teachers? He said of these false teachers that they turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. They turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Again, John MacArthur says in his commentary on Jude, the false spirituality of these apostates could not restrain their fleshly lusts. The false spirituality of these apostates could not restrain their fleshly lusts because they turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. The word lasciviousness means sensuality, indecency, or unrestrained vice. These false teachers, though while putting on an affront of religion, were actually under the power and control of their unredeemed flesh and passions. They could not help but secretly indulge in their fleshly desires. They had no spiritual power within them, enabling them to kill their fleshly desires. So they could not help but secretly indulge. And while they put on a front of religion and a mask of religion, they secretly indulge in their sinful, sensual passions. False Christianity can only restrain one's true self for so long. Ultimately, if you're a hypocrite, that hypocrisy is going to come out. The overall context of the book and verses 4, 6, 7, 8, 13, and 16 of our book suggests possibly that sexual sin is particularly in view here. And sexual scandals, sadly, are a common occurrence amongst false teachers. Many false teachers are discovered as having lived private, sexually impure lives. We see it all the time. It's a sad and true reality. There's a whole documentary on uh, some uh, channel now uh, documenting all the scandals of Bethel Church and the sexual scandals that have happened there. False teachers are often found out to be sexually impure. Not all the time. But a lot of the time, a lot of the time, because your falsehood can only restrain who you are for so long. And this is such an easy vice to fall into. It's so easy. And this is why sexual purity is a qualification for the elders of the Church of Christ. First uh, Peter 3.2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Paul calls pastors to literally be, in the Greek, a one-woman man. Which is just another way of saying that they are to be sexually pure and devoted singularly to their wife. Sexual sin completely, completely destroys 
every aspect of a faithful ministry, and it is why it must be avoided at all costs. And, oh, Father, give grace here in my life that I might be faithful. In my Father's life that he might be faithful. And in all of you men and in all of you women's life that you might be faithful because I love you. And I pray that God would keep you faithful. But let me just lovingly urge you, you're not above this. Sexual sin, you're not above it. It is a sin that you and it is a sin that I can very, very, very easily fall into. It's easy. So don't think you're above it. Pray for grace that you might be removed from it. You know when the Bible says, uh, when Christ says in the model prayer, lead me not into temptation? That means, Father, keep me away from things that might even tempt me to sin. Don't just keep me from the sin. Keep me from things that might tempt me to sin. Because we're not above anything. Apart from the grace of God, a Christian can do anything that a non-Christian can do. Ministries have crumbled. Families destroyed. And lives ruined because of sexual sin. What does Proverbs say about this in Proverbs 5, 3, 5, 3 through 5? For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and their mouth is smoother than oil. What does that mean? It means it looks enticing. The word she says, the enticement she brings, looks good. Looks good. Looks attractive. But what does he say in verse 4? But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps take hold on hell. It's promising, looks good, promises pleasure, but ends in death, destruction, and ruin. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are manifested, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and here's our word, lasciviousness or sensuality. Hebrews 3, 4, marriage is unhonorable in all, in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. True gospel ministers, and may I just say every Christian, are to be like Joseph, and when tempted with sexual sin, run. And sometimes I don't mean metaphorically, I mean literally run run. I mean, hike up your pants and run. Get away from there. Get away from her. Get away from him. She promises you pleasure. She promises you no trouble at all. She promises you no one will know, but it'll come out and everything will go to ruin. Sexual sin ruins 
everything. Sexual sin, particularly in our case, ruins any sort of a faithful ministry because you are disqualified. You can't do it. So true gospel ministers must flee from sexual impurity. They must. And every Christian must flee from sexual impurity. So you young lady, you young man, you older lady, you older man, I urge you, run. You're not above it. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're widowed, you're not above it. Run. In all cases, it ruins everything. And while I must say that there is grace and that there is forgiveness with repentance, there is restoration even with the most heinous of sins, nothing's the same. Nothing's the same. People may come back. People may be restored to fellowship. People may be restored even to some sort of service, not pastorate, but some sort of service, but nothing's the same. So run. So easy. And all it takes is just a moment of your time and ruins your life. So true gospel ministers run for it, but the ministers in Jude's day were known for it. That's what makes them false. Because they purport and they look like all of us. All of us. They could be sitting in the pew and you would know nothing. Because that's how much of an affront they put. But inwardly, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness or sensuality. And in this case, particular, sexual sin. Sexual sin. And God give us grace that we might run from it. And might I just throw this last bit in there. When it says, when Jude says that they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness, focus on that line. Turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. These false teachers not only committed these sins, but they excused their sins by grace. They said, because I'm forgiven and because I have grace, I can do these things and I'm fine. They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. It's the mindset that says, free from the law, blessed condition. I can live how I want and still have remission. You can't. You can't. But guess what? Many people think you can. Many people. It may sound absolutely ridiculous to you, but many people think you can live that way. This is what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism, which literally means against the law. Antinomianism teaches that once someone experiences grace, they are no longer under God's law in any sense. They're free. They're free. And, they get, and then get, this gives them rise to say, basically, I can live however I please. This is antithetical or opposite to anything that the Scripture teaches. 
Because though while Christ has fulfilled the law for us as believers, and we are free from the penalty of the law, and we are free from many of the ceremonial laws and things of this sort, we are not free from the law entirely, and believers do have obligations to the law of God, if anything, the moral law of God. We're not free from it. The law is for our good. It is rightly said that the law points us to Christ for our salvation, then Christ points us to the law to inform our life. The law is for our good. Every Christian should be able to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. John Calvin said in his commentary on Jude, The grace of God has appeared for a far different purpose, even that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We may live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. Let us then know that nothing is more pestilential than men of this kind who, from the grace of Christ, take a cloak to indulge in lasciviousness. They take the Lord's merciful kind grace and use it as an excuse to live in their passions. And though while salvation is by grace, through faith, and Christ alone, and it's apart from anything that you do to merit it, it does not mean that you can have license to live however you want. Rather, the grace of God ought to stir our affections and bend our affections to live righteously. The grace of God doesn't give license to sin. And if you know the grace of God, if you've experienced the grace of God truly, you know this. It doesn't give license to sin. It gives motivation for obedience. Because if he's done all of this for me, how can I then do the things that made him go to the cross? How can I then live however I want? No, if he has freely and undisposedly given me this grace, may I live the rest of my life in obedience, thanking him for this grace. That's the attitude of a Christian. Not wake up, eat, sleep, breathe, sin. Of course Christians sin. Christians can fall into egregious sin, periods of sin, unrepentant sin for a time. But for the believer, it will be repented eventually and turned away from because grace gives no license to sin. It fuels obedience. And I'll end with this. Ending on this point, Paul answers this beautifully in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? After he said, after he said in Romans 5 at the end, where sin did abound, grace abound all the more, he anticipates a question. Well, if the more sin I do, the more grace I've got, well, I'll just go on sinning and get more grace. Paul anticipates that and says in Romans 6, because he knows how ignorant we are sometimes, and how ignorant I would be. He says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Meginatoi. May it never be. The strongest negation in the Greek. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, 
but by love serve one another. First Peter 2.16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. And then 1 John 1.6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. By these false teachers using grace as a license to sin, they prove the fact that they have never experienced true salvation in Christ at all. And this is something uh, lastly to note about false teachers. When you're dealing with false teachers, most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, you're not dealing with misinformed people who are actually converted. When you're dealing with false teachers, most of the time you're dealing with people who know exactly what they're doing and who are actually not converted to begin with. So with false teachers, they mention the name of Jesus, they speak in pulpits, they have huge people that come to their churches, but they're actually not even Christians. And this plagues the church. And we as Christians, as I've said throughout this study and as I'll continue to say, must practice discernment. And discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but knowing the difference between right and almost right. Good, but not good enough. And we must practice discernment. And we will continue looking at how, lastly, the uh, you describe these false teachers next time. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you. If it was not but for the grace, sovereign grace of Almighty God, you would be where they are.